And greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in. You in the chat, behave yourself, behave yourself. And give us some thumbs up as you are working through the chat. And remember, pose some questions, get some questions ready for the end of the teaching. Today we are in part two, chapter three or 3B, I think we called it. Let's dig right into chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, and we'll start off, or I should say, carry on in verse 6. Chapter 3 and verse 6. And thank you to all of you that do support the ministry, those of you that have been with us for some time, and so many of you that may be joining us for the first time. Really, what a blessing, the growth and how Yahuwah is gathering in his people in these last days. What better book to go through than the book of Revelation? Specifically now, the sixth verse of chapter 3. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach says to the Israelite congregations. Now, my translation that specifically says the Israelite congregations, why do they do that? Because for so many years we've been so divorced of Galatians 6 verse 16, the Israel of Elohim. The Israel from conception all the way through to the prophecies of Revelation is the story about Yahweh gathering his special treasure, which is Israel, into his vault to protect them during a time of great trouble. So this is the journey, and for so many years we've had replacement theology, papal theology, and whatnot. So that's why it's in there, just to give us that specific recollection of what the Bible's about. It's about Israel, all 12 tribes scattered abroad that are going to be gathered in, and to the angel of the congregation or the assembly better in Philadelphia write, these things says he that is kadosh, holy, that is emet, true, he that has the key of David, he that opens, no man shuts, and shuts, and no man opens. I know your works, see, I have set before you an open door that no man can shut it. For you have little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look at verse 8. It really ministers to me, and then I'll give you the introduction. How this really ministers to me is that I know that Yahuwah, through his son Yahushua, who is speaking here to the congregation, the assembly of Philadelphia, that he opened a door in my life. I know that. And that door was him, because he is the door. And no matter what happens to me, no matter who comes against me, no matter what I may do that is even self-destructive, no man can shut 
that door. I have received salvation. And those of us that have had that happen, that is our assurance. No matter what happens, no matter all of the devastation, all the things that can go wrong in this life, and there are many, no man can shut it. Because this, at its inception point, is supernatural. It's beyond my life. It's beyond your life. And that is what excites me each and every day. That I'm part of something that happened to me in spite of me. Because he foreknew you. Because he foreknew me. And he is the master potter. And some he just created for destruction. And some of us he created for glory. And no man can shut that door. Why did he create us for glory? And why did he create Pharaoh for destruction? Who are you, O clay, to question the potter? If he should discard that or shape that into the finest vessel. The fact that you and I are a privileged, shiny, varnished vessel ready to receive the waters of salvation, that inspires me. Because you know what? Sometimes I have a little strength. But I know that I'm going to get up in the morning, no matter how weak I am, I'm going to go to his word, and I truly, with all my heart, am going to be committed to what it says. And even when it confronts my sin and confronts my personage, I will change. I'm ready to change because I know that's the power. And I will never deny his name because he's the one that's bought me. That, to me, isn't even my introduction. It just ministers to me, so therefore you're going to hear it. But there are six specific introductory points I do want to make today, and I'll see if we can get through them all today. Number one, the name. The name. Number two, the key. Number three, the point. Number four, the Jew. Number five, the Amen, better, the Amen, because remember there's a pagan god called Amen Ra. So in the Hebrew, it's Amen. And number six, the beginning. The beginning. So that's what we'll start off. Let's start off with the name. But what name am I talking about? Specifically here, a little bit of history, a little bit of a story. Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, the name Philadelphia, the assembly, one of the two witnesses, possibly. If you look at it in Smyrna being one of the witnesses and Philadelphia being another of those two witnesses. Why? Because both of those assemblies have a similitude. Neither contained disapproval or reproach, did they? All of the other assemblies, they had disapproval, they had reproach, but not Philadelphia and Smyrna. But there's another similitude. They were both key in identifying the synagogue of Satan. Now, Philadelphia, historically, just kind of like we are today as a nation, was a very, very prosperous nation. Yet, it had 
some major catastrophe that reshaped its society and they were caught unaware, unprepared. It was subject to major earthquakes. And in fact, in 17 of the common era, 12 cities of Asia overnight suffered a devastating, devastating earthquake. And Philadelphia was hit the hardest because it was right upon the fault line. Right upon the fault line. The similitude? Well, we're on the west coast. And of course, you know, the coast is toast. But specifically, there are a lot of people living as if tomorrow will be just as today. Just like they were in Philadelphia, we have seen more earthquakes in California. We are seeing things rumbling and a shaking. And maybe tomorrow will be like today. But you can see in history that that is not the way to live. Because even one of the assemblies that was without reproach still suffered calamity. Still suffered calamity. Now, Philadelphia was one of the newest of the seven cities that are mentioned in the apocalypse. The seven cities, the seven assemblies in the apocalypse. Now, I'm not sure whether it was um, Eumenesis the second who was the king of Pergamum, or his brother, he had a younger brother called Attalus II. I'm not sure which one of them, but one of them was the one that founded the city. Now, Attalus II of Philadelphus reigned from 159 to 138 before the Common Era. Now, one of those um, brothers founded the city. I'm not sure. But there's a really interesting historical story on how we get this name, as we would call it in America, Philadelphia, the city of love. I'll give you a little backstory to that, because there actually was in history this false rumor that was permeating around in circulation that Eumenes, the king, the elder brother to Attilus, the false rumor was that he was assassinated. He was assassinated, which of course would lead his younger brother, Attalus, to accept the crown, to accept the kingship. But then, when his brother actually returned, and he wasn't dead, he relinquished the crown to his brother when he miraculously returned from Greece. Now, the Romans they really wanted to keep him as king rather than his brother, his elder brother. But he still relinquished the crown, even from the pressure of the Romans, to his older brother who miraculously turned, returned from Greece. So this is where we get Philadelphia, the city of love. Because in spite of the Romans who wanted him to overthrow his brother, because the love that he had for his brother, he relinquished the crown. The brotherly love, Philadelphus, is where we get this. 
Really, what does it commemorate? Loyalty. The loyalty and devotion that Attalus had to his brother, and that's what earned him the moniker Philadelphus, which is, of course, lover of his brother. Kind of interesting, right? Anyway, let's look at um, the second point, the key. I mean, we've got in this narrative, what have we got? The key of David. Of, of course, Yahusha has the key of David, which is really a metaphorical expression to indicate, listen, what does it indicate? Complete and utter control over something, right? If you have the key to something, you have complete and utter control over something, don't you? The door that is shut that nobody can enter, you have complete and utter control over it if you have the key. So that's what it's communicating. But then we'll have to get to the history to identify what particular door and control that is that the one who has it holds. We would have to turn to Isaiah chapter 22. A little bit of text here, so do turn there and follow along with me. Isaiah 22, verse 15, we're going to find out what this key of David is. It is something that he has total control over. We need to identify what it is that he has control over. Because if you choose or you are deceived or you misidentify the door, you will be denied access. Very important. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15. The background to this narrative, of course, is against Shebna. You may remember it because Shebna, I'm giving you a hint here, he was removed from his office and he was replaced by Elkanim. Isaiah 22 and the 15th verse. Thus saith Yahweh Zavar, Go, get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here? And whom hast thou here? That thou hast hewed out thee a sepulchre here, as he that heweth him out a sepulchre on high, and that gave of a habitation for himself in a rock. Verse 17. Behold, Yahweh will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a bull into a large country. There thou shalt die, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy master's house. Verse 19. And I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliachim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. 
So he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. There's our context. And I will fasten him as a nail in a surety place. And he shall be upon a glorious throne to his father's house. Verse 24. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of thine father's house. The offspring of the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels and flagnons. In that day, saith Yahuwah Sevar, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed. It shall be cut down, it shall fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for Yahuwah has spoken. This is the context of the key that we see in the apocalypse. What is it doing? What does it guard? What does it give access to? What does it shut? What does it open? It is identified clearly here. It's about undisputed authority. Whoever holds it is the key master, the gatekeeper. Currently, we are seeing the devil, Satan, trying to counterfeit this key through all of the technological platforms that we have. This is the truth, yet we are living in an age like none before where you have Google platforms, whether it's the one we're on right now, YouTube, Gmail, Amazon, all of these are trying to what? Be the what? Undisputed authorities, the gatekeepers to all of your private personal information. That will actually and does affect voting, the way our economy works, what can be spoken, well, that's hate speech. So we're looking at the Satan's counterfeit of this truth, the gatekeepers. These massive corporations that are blackmailing and trying to hold all the keys to your personal information, to what I speak and teach on their platform, We've had to open up a BitChute account because we don't know how much longer we'll be able to communicate these truths on their platforms because they're the gatekeepers. Already, if you, you can't um, put your political part party's um, advertisements on certain Google platforms, they won't allow it. You can't sell merchandise if it has something to do with a political party, we know which one, that they don't like. They'll take it down. And then the people that try to make money off advertising, they will demonetize their platforms because they are the gatekeepers. That's just the social media, but it affects the voting, the presidency possibly, the economy, all of this. But we know that there's the truth. And the truth will set us 
free because really Yahusha is the ultimate gatekeeper. Meaning he has the undisputed authority to admit or to exclude. Not Google, not Amazon, not all of these big corporate giants that would try to do that through wickedness and deception. But Yahusha's authority is undisputed and it is plain for all to see because he operates in the light, not under the cover of shadows, conspiracy and darkness. Yahusha has the ultimate authority, context of Isaiah 22, to admit, listen, to admit or to exclude from the new Jerusalem and it's directly connected to, in context, what? The priesthood. Because this is all about the priesthood. Yahusha has the undisputed authority as the gatekeeper, the one who holds open the door that no one can shut or closes, that which no one can open, to exclude or to admit people into the new Jerusalem. And it's based upon his authority as the reigning Malkizedek high priest. And our comprehension of this Malkizedek message ties into this in a huge apocalyptic way. The point being, this is my third point, just as Shebna in the narrative was removed from office and replaced by Elkanim, so has what? The Levitical priesthood been removed and replaced with him who holds the key to his priests, that's you and I, entrance into the new Jerusalem. Meaning, if you follow Messianic Judaism, if you follow Judaism, if you follow Christian Zionism, if you follow the papal priesthood, the Mormon priesthood, the Jehovah Witness, the Zionist priesthood, you have what? No access and you will be barred. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying specifically in the 8th chapter and the 13th verse. And this is the very verse that caused my exit from Calvary Chapel. Because I questioned this publicly in an elders meeting. And this caused my exit from the church and my awakening. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. In that he saith a new, it's most probably, if you've got a good translation, that word that comes next, italicized. A new what? Well, we'd have to find out. In that he saith a new, italicized, he hath made the first old. Now, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Some translations say near disappearing and ready to wax old. So it's a new what? Well, in Calvary Chapel, it was a new testament. And the old is done away with. Right? It's locked out. Or maybe if you were a Baptist, it's... uh, new law of Christ. I'm no longer under the Ten Commandments. I'm under the law of Christ. 
right? Depending on the denomination. But do you have access with that? No. You're again locked out. Oh, it's the same old priesthood. Well, no, it's not. You're locked out. Well, it's, you know, the law of Moses is done away with. Well, again, you're locked out. That's why it's in italics. You have to figure it out. The only available entrance, according to Isaiah 22, is acknowledging the right priesthood. Otherwise, the priests will get transferred or switched out, like we saw with Shebna and Elkanim. Hebrews 8 verse 13 should read, in that he saith a new priesthood. It's certainly not a new covenant, which I think the New King James possibly says, or maybe the New American Standard. It's not. It's a new priesthood. Is the whole context of Hebrews chapter 7 about covenant or priesthood? Is the whole context of Hebrews chapter 8 about covenant or priesthood? And this is what I brought up to my pastor. I said, I hear what you're saying, but you do realize that's in italics. It's not talking about covenant. It's not talking about the old covenant of Moses, and now we've got the new covenant of the law of God, the law of Christ. This is talking about we have got the priesthood of Aaron vanishing and passing away at the destruction of the temple in 70 of the common era. And now there's this transference that we already had prophesied in Hebrews 7, 11, and 12 that's now come in, and it's a transference from Aaron and to Melchizedek. And thus, that was my exit from the traditional church and the beginning of this ministry. It's amazing. In that he saith, a new priesthood. He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That's a perfect translation. Meaning, Yahushua as Malkitzedek, Davidic Messiah and High Priest, has absolute power to control entrance in to the heavenly kingdom. He's the only one. He is the gatekeeper that has absolute authority to bring entrance into the heavenly kingdom. This is in total contrast to the devils or the synagogue of Satan, because what they were doing was excommunicating believers of Yahushua. Total contrast. They were excommunicate. And even today, if you were to go into a Ashkenazi synagogue and declare that you were a follower of Yahushua, they'd kick you out. You'd have to go in there and put your light under a bushel. And if you did that, shame on you. Right? But I know many Messianic people that have done that. The one time, or I think we went to a traditional Jewish synagogue, the first time we ever did that, back in the Messianic movement, I got out the car and they were all going up the steps into the synagogue. And you know what I shouted out from the car? Because I'm not one to put my light under a bushel. I said this. Whatever happened to Yeshua? And they all looked around. And a woman came over and said, you can't mention that name here. I was like, what? You remember that? So anyway, let's look at verse 9. Because this priesthood, this key is everything. No matter if the door to the messianic movement, and it has been closed to me, 
I'll never get the invites to go and speak at the Messianic conferences anymore. And I'm okay with that because I made my decision in line with Hebrews, in line with the true gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper is all about the priesthood. We just read that. And the true priest or high priest, the one who has authority over the priesthood. Because if you choose the wrong priest or high priest, you will come under the judgment and you will be excluded. It will be shut to you. Verse 9. See, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but do lie. See, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my endurance, I will guard you, because you have done that, in the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole earth, to test them that dwell in the earth. See, I come quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no man may take of your crown. So, yes, sometimes it is taxing. And you're like, oh man, it would have been so much easier if I didn't know all that I have come to understand. Wouldn't it? It was a lot easier. It really was. It was so easy when I was Mr. Popular Calvary Chapel Mountain Ministries. I, it was like the Ken and Barbie show. We'd show up on Sunday and it was like, oh. And now it's like it is a trial every time we broadcast, is it not? It is a trial and a tribulation. And those that then start to communicate what we're teaching, again, on, in every direction. But we see here that he will give us the strength to endure if we hold fast to the biblical revelation that he has revealed to us. Because once you know, how can you turn back? I mean, how can you? Once you've set your hand to the plow, you can't go back. They were convinced, those of the synagogue of Satan, bring it forward to today, they were convinced that by a claim to a national identity and a claim to a religious heritage, that they were the people of Yahuwah. Did we just see that in an executive order? A people that have a claim to a national identity, a people that make a federal claim to a religious heritage that they are the people of Yahweh, the chosen people, right? Do you see the parallel with the executive order today? I mean, come on, this is huge. So my fourth question was the Jew. Who is the Jew? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it is written. Because nothing's changed, okay? Yahuwah is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Deuteronomy 30 and the 6th verse, it is written, And Yahuwah, your Elohim, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahuwah, your Elohim, with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Who's the Jew? Nothing's changed. Paul didn't make something brand new up in Romans chapter 2 in the 28th verse. Let's turn there and read it. He was just quoting Torah 
just like Moshe was, because this has always been the Israel of Elohim. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. And it has to be by the Spirit. Because when that happens, then you've had the door open in your life that no man can close, no matter what trials and tribulations come upon you, no matter how you're vexed, you will always go back to the moment that that door was opened into your life. And the key master that opened it, no one can shut. It is Yahushua who gives access into the new Jerusalem. So are we living in salvation? Yes but we must endure, but our promise is nigh before us. And that is what excites me each and every day when sometimes I may be oppressed, depressed, repressed, and all of the other pressings that come upon us, but I still have inspiration. Would you like me to answer that? Let's see who it is. I want to see who's... Who the heck is calling right now? It's a flip phone. You're, sorry. It's your mum. Your auntie. It's not going to be your mum, is it? You're over the hill. There's no way your mum's going to be caught unless she's calling from the grave. And then we've got a major problem there, don't we? My goodness gracious. That is so rude. That's ageism, right? That's the way we live today. Galatians 6, verse 16. The Israel of Yahweh. That'll teach you all silence your phones. All right. Then minor go off, right? Mario will be calling just to get me in trouble. But the synagogue of Satan's attack against the true remnant Jews is what we see. And Israel will be turned upside down. This whole nation or state of Israel, this whole Zionist theology, it's going to be eventually turned on its eschatological head and come to its eschatological end. It really is a very grim irony of providence. And I love it. It's very incorrect to say it, but I do love it. And let me share what I love about it, okay? Because it's not about Zionistic conversion, all right? That's what John Hagee and, you know, let's go over to Israel and let's try and convert. No, it's not about conversion. It's about utter humiliation. That's what it's about. I can get behind that. I can get behind humiliating mine enemies. I don't want to convert them. I know that's not, you know, churchy enough for you, but Isaiah chapter 60 verse 14 puts some teeth to it. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. I'm looking forward to that day. You may think that that is unmerciful, but you know what? I am, look, because I hold my tongue when things happen, because I read Bible verses like these and pray these kinds of things, and you can judge me if you will. That's okay. Judge me by the word. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahuwah, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. 
I'm being a little facetious. It's not all about me and it's not all about you. It's about the eschatological consumption of all things, which is the new Jerusalem. This is really talking about Jerusalem, but I can sometimes insert myself into the Bible text. How about that every morning I pray? Don't you do that? I mean, when I read the Psalms, I'm David. And when those little sons of, are doing wickedness, they're Absalom. Right? Don't you? I, I'm, I'm, I, baby, I'm just the only one that does these things. And I end up with tears in my eyes. I mean, I do. Because I insert myself into the text. But really, what is Isaiah 60 verse 14 telling us? What the synagogue of Satan expected from us? They themselves will be forced to render unto us the true Israel. They will play the role of the heathen and bend the knee and confess the assembly of saints who follow Yahusha are the true Israel. That's what you'll end up seeing. Not conversion, but their humiliation under the scepter of Yahusha. That's what will happen. Unlike the Christian Zionists, unlike the Messianic Zionists, we shouldn't look to conversion. We should look to their humiliation. Sorry if that offends you, but that's the way it is. So get ready for a sealing and get ready for a flight into the wilderness. Look at verse 12. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the tabernacle of my Elohim. And he shall go out no more, and I will write upon him the name of my Elohim, and the name of the city of my Elohim, which is the renewed Jerusalem, which comes down from the heaven, the heavens of my Elohim, and I will write upon him my new name. So I love the true name. I understand that the letter J was invented in 1532. As you've seen me over the years, I've gone from Yahushua to Yeshua to Yahusha. And you know what? None of us have got this perfectly figured out. Is it Yahuwah? Is it Yahweh? Is it Yahweh? It's definitely not Yehovah. Sorry. You've been watching too much Michael Rood and Nehemiah Gordon. That's that problem. There is, we can look at the language and there's a difference between a wah and a vav. But even all this aside, when you think you know, then you shall fall and he will come and reveal a new name. And we're all wrong and he's right. So I'm not going to squabble over the name. I may change next. Now, if you start using some pagan name or some false god, or you bring some Mohammedan into the assembly and you say, oh, well, you know, there's no difference between Allah and Yahuwah. Heaven forbid. That is blasphemy. I experienced that in Calvary Chapel. Don't give me any of that stuff and nonsense. Okay? You can't say that. That's called universalism. There is one true Elohim and he has what we know, of course, the yod he wah how you pronounce that, and his son, the heir, the one who brings forth salvation. 
and we know he came in the name of his father. But all that to say this, we've got to stop the squabbling over these things. We should be coming together. We should be coming together if we are those that have had the door unlocked in our life by the crucified and risen Savior who sits upon the right hand of his Father. That's the identifying factor of who do you serve. Now, the identifying factor of who you serve isn't the pronunciation. It's the identifying factor and the text you read. The King Jimmy. I just bought a gorgeous new King James Version. I'm going to share it with you. It's absolutely gorgeous. And the reason I bought it, it was authorized by Queen Victoria. I had to get it in England, shipped over to me. It's the authorized version, and it's got a phenomenal scribal format in the front for all of your family records. And it stands up in, of course, under the crown. It is a great way for you to put down your family records of when you were married, the birth of your children, deaths. That's how they would record things of old. And I wanted to do that. And it's beautiful. It's the King James Version, the only one that is authorized to stand up in those kinds of situations. You think the NIV is going to stand up underneath Queen Victorian court? No. Of course, it wasn't around then, thank goodness. So I like that type of thing. I like the history, and I like the truth, and I like the text. Regardless, sometimes we can squabble over some of these silly things. And here, even when we think we've got it figured out, he's going to come back with a new name and reveal it all unto us. The big thing that he wants to communicate to us is, do you have an ear that you can hear what the Ruach says? Because too many times people are squabbling over a pronunciation. There's no spirit there except the spirit of contention and avarice. And you just want to fight to be right. That's not what, that's the wrong Ruach. The Ruach has to say to the Israelite congregations and to the angel of the congregation of Laodicea, write. What was going on with the Laodiceans as we go into this part of the 14th verse? They were blinded. How were they blinded? Like many people who squabble over the name. They were blinded by their self-confidence. They were blinded by their self-confidence. They had an assurance that they had it all figured out, totally self-confident that they had it all figured out. They had their doctrine dialed. And when you're like that, eventually, do you know where it leads? It always leads to the same place, lukewarmness. When you think that you've got it all figured out, when you think you've got your doctrine dialed, it will lead you to a place of lukewarmness and avarice. Why? Because historically, Laodicea's weakness was its lack of water. The water had to be schlepped up from six miles down in the valley 
And then they had to pump it. Somehow irrigation, it wouldn't have been pumped back then, but through a bunch of stone pipes, which means that the water could have easily been cut off by a hostile party. And that was their weakness. Now, remember, Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans. Now, of course, it's lost, but we know that he actually wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, and we can find that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. He wrote to this community. This was a very large Jewish community of about 7,500 adult males in Laodicea. Colossians 4, verse 16, we can see that he wrote a letter to them. We don't have that letter today. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the assembly of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from the Laodiceans. So there was good communication going back. We don't have those letters. They were lost. So this gives you the context, meaning they were so confident in their what? Station that they didn't realize their very vulnerability. And over the years, I've seen too many people confident in their station of exegesis, if you will, that they then end up becoming lukewarm. Because the spirit and what excites us, the power of Yahuwah and the consummation of all things is lost because of avarice and malice and squabbling over our logic, reason, and intellect. He's going to give us a new name. He's going to reveal his new name to us. Let's just move in that direction and have that ear to hear that we can hear. Now we get on to the fifth point, the Amen. The Amen. Look at verse 14. These things says the Amen, the only faithful and true witness, the beginning of all the creation of Yahweh. This is powerful. Verse 14, these things says the Amen. In the Hebrew, this would, of course, be spelled an Aleph, Mem, Nun, Sophie. You'd see those three Hebrew letters. And it relates back to Proverbs chapter 8 and the 22nd verse. Yahuwah possessed me. We're talking about Hokmah, wisdom here. Yahuwah possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Aleph, Mem, Nun, Sophie, the Amen. It could be rendered more properly as the master workman, the master architect. Because Yahushua wasn't really a carpenter. He was an architect, a master builder, a master framer, just as Beziel was a prophecy of what would come about the true tabernacle. Not the outward one, but the true tabernacle, meaning Yahushua right here as the Amen is being presented as Yahuwah's advisor, Yahuwah's right hand specifically in the creation. It's the pre-existence of Yahushua. This is a very troublesome verse for the kingdom of the cults. Very troublesome. Just unlocking those three Hebrew letters 
taking it back to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 2, you will find the Jehovah Witnesses will not want to dialogue with you. So it's a good one to use. Now, the sixth thing that I want to bring up, and the final, the beginning. Remember we see that here? Not only the Amen, but the beginning. Breaking this down into the Greek and the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word bikurim, where we get first fruits. The Greek word is arche, arche. Now, on the surface, we definitely can connect this with Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We can definitely connect this with, of course, John chapter 1, verse 2. I mean, I think that's great. I really do. But we don't want to leave it there because then we're going to miss the real power pack. This is a great one to finish on because this is a powerhouse text when we can really understand the beginning, Greek, Arche, Hebrew, Bikarim, and we can bring it all back, not to Colossians 1.15 only, not to John chapter 1, verse 2 only, which are extreme value, but that surface, and we did that, I did that back in the church, and there's nothing wrong with that. But let's get deeper and really find what this beginning arche or bikarim is, because we will find, like the other one, the Amen, this text is skipped over by the kingdom of the cults. They have to skip over it. The, J, the JWs, the Mormons, they have to skip over it because... It is so clear on what it attributes to Yahusha. It attributes to Yahusha as the beginning of Yahuwah's creation or the ruler of Yahuwah's creation. It's dreadfully terrifying to me. And I brought up, you know, Michael Rood and, and, and Nehemia Gordon because I've seen so many people that have gone through those ministries and listened to those teachings that have ended up denying Yahushua's personage as Messiah based upon wolves coming in in sheep's clothing. You can't have somebody teach you the Bible that isn't a believer and being converted by Yahushua. You can't. It tells you in the scripture that you can't do that. Okay, if you deny the son, you don't have the father either. So don't be teaching me about the father when you denied the son, because you don't, your father is a different father than mine if you do not acknowledge the son. So to put somebody up in front of you that denies the son, he's not teaching you about the father, Yahweh, even if. It may be presented that to you because Yahushua clearly identifies that as does the writers in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. Here we're going to see Yahushua as the master creator, the beginning of Yahuwah's creation, the ruler of Yahuwah's creation, but it connects to the restoration of all things, the house of Joseph by Messiah Ben Joseph, which is a very ancient Hebrew tradition that Messiah Ben Joseph, Messiah Ben Joseph. Let's look now tracking this beginning Greek word Arche, Hebrew word Bikarim back into the Torah. Let's turn context is everything. Genesis 
chapter 40, verse 13. Who is the beginning? What about denying Yahushua as Messiah? What about having a fake priesthood? We could be talking Mormons. We could be talking Jehovah Witnesses. We could be talking Karite, they who say they are Jews and are not that deny the Son, therefore they don't have the Father. But let's really find out what the Bible says and the context of this Arche or Bikarim. Genesis chapter 40, verse 13. Remember, this is going to snowball from the key of David to the identifier of him who opens that no one's going to shut. It's building. And this is the consummation of the third chapter. So all of the things that I've mentioned, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, build to the sixth. These are not isolated. You'll have to track them in your own time. But this is assuring that you do not lose your first love. And what I am giving you, I'm not giving it to you. The Father's giving it to us corporately because we are born again. It's just something to cling to even more in those times of trial. Because I, I come across more kingdom of the cults today than I did 10 years ago. I come across more people that are denying the faith and going into Judaism, that are becoming lukewarm than I ever did before. Because it's going to be more and more of a falling away. So every little thing that I can cling to about the one that opened the door in my life in 1996, the stronger I am and the more conviction. This one for me... Oh, it just gives me such a peace, such an assurance, and I want to share it with you. Genesis chapter 40, verse 13. We're going to find out who this beginning is, what it means. It's all about an identification of an office. It's all about a cup, but not a cup in the past. It's going to come to the consummation of a cup of wrath that is going to be poured out upon all of those that reject his office, his priesthood, and who he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Yet three days and Pharaoh shall remember thy office. That's the word that appears right there in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. Remember my office is translated in the Septuagint into the Greek word arche. So what is the beginning? It's about identifying and remembering the office. We've already looked at the difference between Shebna and his office of priesthood being passed to Elkanin. We've already looked at the key of David that unlocks the authority to that office. We've already reviewed Hebrews 8.13 and the office of Aaron being transferred to the office of Melchizedek. So do you see the theme of Revelation chapter 3, these last verses. Now we're going to see it in the context of Messiah ben Joseph in the Torah, and it's going to come forward to Messiah ben Joseph in the apocalypse. Yet three days and Pharaoh shall remember thy office, Arche, the beginning and he shall restore thee to thy place of chief cup-bearer, and thou shalt give the cup of Pharaoh into his hand according to thy former high place, and thou wast won't be cup-bearer. He's going to come forth. 
he that was taken to prison, his office was removed, he's going to restore back to his office and be the cupbearer. Whereas we know the baker is going to have a whole different encounter and his end is going to be completely different. So we can look here and we can use the context of Arche in the Septuagint and how it relates to the eschatological consumption of all things. It's talking about the redemption of Joseph, meaning in the apocalypse it is the redemption of the house of Joseph from the nations and everything that it entails. Yahuwah knows Yahusha's office. The father knows the son's office. The narrative builds in chapter 3, verse 16, through verse 14, it builds from the key of David to the new name, to the Amen, to the beginning of creation, to the key not only of David, but the key to the revelation of the new name, the key to the alien, the key to the beginning of Yahweh's creation is knowing Yahusha's office. That's the key. The key is knowing Yahusha's office as Malkitzedek High Priest. Look at chapter 40, verse 21 of, of course, Genesis. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. There's that Greek word arche again. And what's it used in context? Of restoring to an office the one that would bring forth the cup. But here in the Revelation, what's that cup going to be? It's going to be poured out as a cup of wrath upon all of those who misidentify the office. It's that simple. And people go, oh, Matthew Nolan, he sure does bang on about the Malkitzedic priesthood. Everything's the Malkitzedic priesthood. Everything is the Malkitzedic priesthood. It's everywhere. To me. And maybe to you tuning in too. <laughs> but look at this. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. Arche comes from Genesis chapter 40, verse 13. It then jumps in Genesis chapter 40, verse 21. It's about the restoration to the proper office. But here we're given a glimpse into what the cup is now given and into whose hand it is given in actuality. Instead of the world's cupbearer, which was Pharaoh... Pharaoh's cupbearer and the world's king, Pharaoh himself, we will find here in the pages of the apocalypse that the cup of indignation is in the presence of the Lamb. Am I the only one that's getting this? I hope not. Okay, I'm going to carry on 
Because maybe you do get it, but you're just not communicating that with me. So instead of the world's cupbearer, I'll repeat that because maybe you missed it. And instead of the world's king, we're going to find that the cup of indignation in the presence of the lamb. We have to wait to the 14th chapter to get there, but I'll read it to you. Chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of Yahuwah which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is all about the priesthood authority and the one who holds the key of David. Look at verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I desire that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are in betwixt, you are lukewarm and are neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, this is a vomitorium that you don't want to be a part of. Okay? There's a massive contrast here between the hot medicinal waters of Hierapolis and the cold, pure waters that ran through Colossae. And that's what's being contrasted here in history. So Laodicea was providing neither refreshment for the spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. We need to be providing refreshment through the word, but then when we come together at the feasts, we need to be bringing healing to the spiritually sick. That's part of our charge. But they were an example of the nominal self-satisfied believer. I'm fine. I've got my doctrine dialed. I don't need to know anymore. Oh, don't tell me about that. I don't want to change my life. I and find the way I am. I'm a nominal, self-satisfied believer. Who wants to live that way? I see too many people that name the name of Christ that live as nominal, self-satisfied believers. The entire Laodicean community was permeated by complacency. They were permeated by complacency, and it is often accompanied with spiritual pride. It is so often accompanied with spiritual pride. Verse 70, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are a wretched, miserable, and poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich in a white raiment, that you may be clothed, so that the shame of your nakedness does not appear, and anoint your eyes with ointment, that you may see. I love this scripture in Luke chapter 12, verse 19, where it says thus, and I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast made much goods laid up for many years. Oh, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Life is good. But Yahweh said unto him, you fool. 
this night, this night, thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? I've been an individual, and I use this word deliberately, unfortunately, that cannot number on one hand how many people I have seen this happen, people that were dear to me, that chose another path, that have died. And I, unfortunately, have been there at those times, and I knew it was this moment. I knew it. And I knew that Yahuwah had me there for that moment. And it grieves me. Because they couldn't see it. And there's nothing that you could do but pray and be a willing vessel in the hopes that they would turn and repent and know the glory of Yahuwah, that he has the power to open that door and no man can shut. But they did not. And they died through sickness, through car accidents, through bullets to the brain, through heroin overdoses, all of those wicked things. Like, why? Because Yahuwah is the potter. We are the clay. And that if he has chosen us for glory, then we have a responsibility to let our light shine and that these vessels be for honor. But we have to fill our vessels with the pure, undefiled water of the Ruach HaKodesh. That we can't be complicit. We can't be lukewarm. We can't have avarice and malice between us and think we know it all and be bickering over a name and a pronunciation if we're talking about the one true living Elohim who sits upon a throne and his son sits upon his right hand, that he is the one who has the authority to shut that no one can open. And to open and no one can shut. And verse 19, because as many as I love, I do rebuke and chasten. Be zealous. Be crazy on fire and zealous. Therefore, and make repentance. See, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is conversion. This is the conversion experience that we all need to have. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my Abba on his throne. This is the identifier of our faith. This is the Elohim that we serve. And the rest of the squabbling, he's going to put that all shame. It's never 
ever been the practice of Yahuwah to storm the ramparts of the human heart. It's just not his practice. He is waiting for us to open up our heart unto him and accept his son in. But he will not storm. He will never storm the ramparts of the human heart. Because he's not a dictator. So we have to change our communication to others and pray that their hearts would be, not their minds, not their language, not their translation, but that their hearts would be opened because that's when verse 19, verse 20, and verse 21 comes into fruition. I pray that we, verse 22, have an ear that we can hear what the Ruach says to us today because we are the Israelite congregations. This is a powerful few verses, 6 through 14, because I believe in the times that are coming, many are being deceived, and we need an assurity of who Yahushua is, what this priesthood is all about, and that he is the one that exercises all authority. Not the Levites, not this movement, that movement, but Yahushua as Melchizedek. Amen? Next week we'll dive into chapter 4. Let's see if we've got some questions. Mm, all right. All right, let's have a look, see here. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. All right. Questions, comments. All right. Here's a nice one. This, is, this, this question is from John Shuclay. Shabbat Shalom, John Shuclay. I hope that I'm pronouncing that right. Matthew. When you talk about those who are created for destruction, are you saying that we don't have a free will? This sounds like Calvinistic theology. Well, John, that is just an absolutely fabulous question. It's a question, of course, that's been asked and argued and squabbled over the ages. But the wonderful thing is I have a great out on this question because I'm not saying it. It was written to the Romans by Paul himself, and the word of Yahweh says it. Says it. Now, do we have to struggle between Calvinism and Armenianism? And yes, many people have. But Yahweh is beyond our logic, reason, and intellect. And Calvinism leads you to one end of the spectrum. And Armenianism leads you to the other end of the spectrum. But the supernatural power of Yahweh through his Holy Spirit is cyclical. cyclical. It's not linear. And you bend around the corner and it all comes together in the eschatological consummation of all things. But we have to wait and see and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But yes, the arguments of Armenianism and Calvinism are based upon these types of ideas. But great question. Great, good skirting, right? See how I got around that one? All right. That's a good question, though. All right. 
I'm not a Calvinist or an Armenian. Let's see if we can get another question here. Angela Bonjour. Well, bonjour, Angela. She says this. Is there anywhere in the book of Revelation that says that those who are keeping the wrong Sabbath, Eve to Eve, will not have Yahweh's sign or mark? Um, no. And again, I think sometimes what we do find is this whole... Um, identifying mark of Sabbath, which is a sign, very much so, but sometimes a lot of baggage is imported today because of Ellen G. White and um, the Seventh-day Adventist and how they really had this very strong apocalyptic revelation interpretation about how it was all going to be about the Sabbath day, which was what was going to divide the wheat from the chaff and that there would be the Sunday laws that would come in. So a lot of the time, some of this baggage does seep into our movement, whatever that movement will be. Malki Zedek, Yahushua on at the right hand of the Father. But it does not specifically say that. The identifying mark, of course, is that those who have the testimony of Yahushua and keep his commands. Of course, which Sabbath is one of them. But um, yes, good question, though. All right, let's have a look here. Didn't understand that one. Let's try another one. All right, here we go. This question is from I Am. Scripture is written with Eastern metaphorical mindset. Why do Western mindset make it literal? We know water is symbolic of truth and oil for joy. Shouldn't we interpret it based upon Eastern thoughts? I think we should interpret scripture based upon pardes, the plain sense, the remez, the drash, and the sowed. The plain sense, the hint, the allegory, and the deep mystical understanding, and that they should all work in a cyclical unity that none would contradict the other, rather than going into Eastern and Western thought. I think that's the way to look at the Bible. But that's just me. But great question. Let's have a look, see what else we got. Well, here's a great question. This is a very difficult one to answer. Jeff Dion, Bible Teachings. Do you believe in a flat earth... Your thoughts at end of video for questions and answers. That is a question that keeps coming up. And it is a phenomenal question. Now, in the chat, you may see somebody with the chat sign. It will be everything he says is in caps. I think he's got a 1990s flip phone and has got caps lock on. He will give you a great opinion on that answer. And my goodness, you know who you are. In fact, 
I think this is the next question by the specific one and only from that funny land south of the border inhaling paint fumes galore, Mr. Danan Taylor. Question for Nolan. You spell it A-N, not E-N. Take the all caps lock off, please. The ram and the he-goat now in the Middle East. What's really going on in last day at please? Yeah, not sure if me comprehendi typing. Let's go on to another question. <laughs> Modesto Gaza. All right, those of you that would like to donate to this ministry, we are going to start a specific iPhone fund for Mr. Danan Taylor. We're going to bring him from the 90s into the new millennium, and we are going to make sure that there is no cap locks feature on his phone. I'm kidding. But that, I've thought about doing that for several years, actually. Modesto Gaza. Question. Is the name... Oh, they're coming in now. Oh, people are blowing my phone up. Oh, dear. I must have poked the hornet's nest. Modesto Gaza, question, is the name Yahusha supposed to literally equate to Joshua? Because in the priesthood after Moses, Joshua led beyond the Jordan where Yahusha eventually gets Mikford baptized to take over the Malkitzedek. I think so. I think Modesto's got a great mind here and, and communicates very well. I mean, definitely. I think the King James Version even... Um, I mean, they, they missed the connection when it was translated, but it's there, of course. Yehoshua, Joshua, it even comes across in that translation. So I think those connections are undeniable. Again, we can break this down a lot further by those studies on the name, and we've done the best that we can in the days that we live. And I'm open to, you know, more information, but at this time, um, I think that we can go way down a rabbit hole. Here's another question about the name Omega Truth, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Why doesn't anyone call him Emmanuel? Well, that's a good point. Why don't we give that a bang? There we go. Add a little bit more into the confusion and confundery, if there is such a word as that. I think I made that one up. Right, this one is from T. Joy. I don't know if I'm going to get through all these questions. There's a lot of questions here. Deuteronomy 10.4 plus 5.22 says, The sanctuary and the priestly duties were, part, were a part of the Book of the Covenant. Did the Malkitzedic priesthood include a sanctuary and priestly duties, initially as they were all supposed to be priests? But then the priesthood changed to Aaron after the breach. So remember, Moshe, there was a difference between Moshe and his tent, the tent of meeting, and the later tabernacle. There was a difference between the ochel in the Hebrew, the tent of meeting, and the mishkan, which was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was something that was done as a consequence. It came after the golden calf breach. And I think we've covered many of those um, teachings in the past. Hopefully that answered that. 
see what else we got. Oh, here's a good question. This, this question is from T. Joy. Why did Jesus have to pay the death penalty position of Genesis 15? Did it make that conditional promise void once both parties had died, Abraham and Jesus? I just don't understand the legalities around the death necessity and Genesis 15. That's a very good question. So, not to be too long-winded, this is a very technical question, but we can answer it. Genesis 12, Yahuwah promised to Abraham an unconditional covenant. But Abraham came back and he said, well, how do I know that I'm really going to get this? So Yahuwah said to him, well, flay open these pieces, Genesis 15. This was the covenant arm that's always attached to the original unconditional covenant. This was the conditional covenant arm, Genesis 15, attached because he had a lack of faith. Now, there's a flaying over the pieces and a walking in between that symbolizes that if this, and it was the treaty sign, if this covenant is breached or broken, then the death penalty will be enacted. Right? Clearly. Well, we fast forward 430 years later. There's the golden calf breach. They break the covenant. Therefore, Yahweh is going to do what? Enact the death penalty clause. Right? He was about to smite all Israel, except Moshe interceded as a mediator. The death penalty was not enacted a temporary clause, the book of the law, was put in until the time of Reformation when the seed would come. So they were put under the Levitical priesthood. They were put under the book of the law. The death penalty was not enacted, but it still had to be enacted if we were ever going to get back to Genesis 12. And so therefore the son came, paid the death penalty clause, Therefore, the stay, the book of the law, was, was now done away with. The book of the covenant now could be re-ratified by new blood, by a new covenant, by a new high priest, which would then connect you back to the unconditional promises of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So yes, he had to die. Somebody had to die, either all Israel... And Yahweh would make a nation and a priesthood out of Moses. But Moses interceded. So therefore, the stay was given, the book of the law, until the consummation of the new covenant. Great question, though, isn't it? I don't know how many more we've got here. All right, we're coming to the end. We're coming to the end. Oh, I think we've got one more. Let's see. This one is from Jesse Schmollett. Or Jesse... Oh, no, it's not really. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? How do they say that guy's name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, this one's really from Jesse Chanel. Or Cha no, Jess no, it's not Chanel. It's Jesse's channel, sorry. <laughs> Chanel. Too, too, yeah. Yeah, and too long in the beauty industry. Jesse Chanel, sorry, 
Uh, giving away all my secrets here. Too, too, too long in the uh, product industry. Jesse's channel. Question. How should I handle a fellowship? Oh, this is going to be a good one. How should I handle a fellowship that refuses to discuss difficult issues that make some uncomfortable? Invite me down there. <laughs> That's your answer. Send me an email of every uncomfortable topic that you want discussed, and I will put chapter and verse to it, and we will blow the place up, and there will be an assembly apocalypse, which apparently I am really good at. <laughs> All right, funniness aside, it is Shabbat, and I think we have finished the third chapter, and next week we'll bang right on into chapter four. Remember, if you've lasted this long to the end, even if you've been hate-watching, you now have to give us some thumbs up, subscribe to the channel, and get the notification buttons going. And remember, we do have the comments down below. So plop your comments down below. Keep it kosher and keep in community. And we'll catch you live next Shabbat, Revelation chapter 4.